to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things disaster-related, uh, crisis management, emergency management, business continuity, and resilience, and anything that's relatable to those topics. I'd like to uh, remind everyone that I will be in Phoenix in the end of September, early October, for the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, and uh, probably going to be doing a, a live broadcast um, haven't got it confirmed yet, but uh, I think we're we're heading in that direction. If there's any topics you'd like us to bring up on the show or any guest or you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. Go to the Voice America webpage for the show. There is a button underneath the graphic that says send the host uh, an email or a note or something along those lines. I do get all emails and I do respond to them. And uh, we'll see about getting you on the show or finding someone to talk about what you want uh, us to touch, or even if you have a question, you know, um, maybe we'll do a show one day in the future just on questions that uh, people have. Today's show is brought to us uh, by the people at Stone Road Inc. with their product, Boast Assessment, which helps you uh, monitor uh, your own program and ask questions about uh, risk, your business impact, resources, dependencies, uh, testing, and lets you see where you stand and helps identify you know, where you might want to refocus your resources. And, of course, if there's any uh, advertising you want to come on the show to talk about a certain product or service you offer, please feel free as well to let me know. Um, we have some packages available for you there. Long-term listeners will remember that I attended the International Emergency Management Conference in Manila, Philippines back in 2018, November. Uh, great conference, a lot of uh, interesting topics, and I've been able to snag a few speakers from that conference to come on the show and talk. And today is another one of those presenters who uh, I had the pleasure of meeting and sitting right beside at our table, uh, a great group of people. And today, calling us from South Africa, you know, I think this is uh, one of the farthest uh, uh, calls I've had, uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Roman Tandlick. Tandlich, sorry, you know, I said it wrong. Roman, welcome no to the problem. show. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to be here. How are things in South Africa? You got warm weather down there? Um, yes, yes. It's a disaster management paradise. Things don't <laughs> work all the time, so you can come up with new ideas or research on a daily basis. <laughs> nice. Well, we just had a snowstorm where I am, so. <laughs> oh, wow. We've got the opposite. Wow. <laughs> different well, challenges yes you uh, could you tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself um you know a little uh what you do where you're from and how you got into what you do sure um i'm originally from slovakia um i've been traveling the world since about 1999 in various uh capacities first to do my phd in the states and then I did a little bit of uh, postdocing in the Middle East, and eventually I ended up in South Africa in 2006 at Rhodes University, where I'm still based. And um, I am doing mainly um, research in water and sanitation, 
and also in related dimensions of policy and um, ethics and things like that. And I bumped into disaster management through the lack of um, service delivery in water and sanitation in parts of South Africa and why interventions of novel solutions to solve the problem fail. So whereabouts in South Africa are you? Uh, are you in... Uh, yeah. So, so when you look at the map, uh, we are in the southeastern part of the country. There is a city on the Indian Ocean coast called Port Elizabeth uh, mm-hmm. or Nelson Mandela Bay uh, Metropolitan Municipality. And when you go inland about an hour's drive, there's a little town called Grahamstown or Mahanda. And that's where Rhodes University is based. Oh, OK. Well, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you here. And uh, thank you. you- you presented a paper in uh, Manila, and I just want to reach and make sure I say the uh, t- uh, title correctly. You presented a case study on disaster risk reduction and public health implications um, in South Africa. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, is that just your focus right now? I know you mentioned you're kind of working in that. Was this just your focus on, on the paper, or are you still focusing on this, or have you moved on to, to something? Um, we... We still focus on this. The reason for that is that um, challenges in the developing world when it comes to disasters are often compounded by uh, development. So uh, along the lines of what the pressure and release model in disaster management tells you, there are underlying vulnerabilities which people um, experience on a day-to-day basis, which the environment experiences. And then when those and the hazard means you have an explosion which leads to a disaster. So we have been trying over the last decade or so with various collaborators that you see on the, some of them you see on the paper. They have been helping me and I've been helping them trying to address these challenges and come up with solutions that you can implement without uh, major investments and that are long life so they can be sustained after your intervention has ended. Well, let's jump into that. You mentioned some underlying vulnerabilities. Can you give us some examples? So an underlying vulnerability often is that um, the, the way that Southern Africa as a region has developed has often, result, uh, has often led to unequal distribution of resources due to various reasons such as colonization and migratory patterns of many um, nations and um, ethnic groups. It has resulted in um, the access to resources often being uh, limited to a select uh, part of the population. And when the democracy then came, like in South Africa, Namibia and other places, it ended up uh, causing major problems because then there was a push by the government, correctly so, to address the, for example, lack of access to water and sanitation, which is what I focus on. And uh, throughout uh, the interventions by the government, a lot of good has been done and still continues to be done, but challenges arise on a day-to-day basis. For example, maintenance of the infrastructure. Uh, the problem often is that in places like South Africa, where you have largely uh, large tracts of land that are sparsely populated, it is very difficult to get services there like piped water and so on. So those are the kind of challenges that we try to come up with novel or adopt existing solutions for. So uh, just out of curiosity, you mentioned sparse population. I, in preparation for today, I, the other on the weekend, I was looking at a map of South Africa. Half of it was green yeah. and the other half was brown. So does that mean yeah. South Africa has a really wide variety of uh, climate and, uh, you know, t- um, 
uh, you know, different kinds of forests and, you know, it's not just rainforest yes. and desert, right? Or do you have a wide, yes. wide selection? Does that contribute to some of these problems? Yes, it does. When you look at the map, the eastern coast, which is along the Indian Ocean, receives about 1,000 millimeters of precipitation per year. But then you, as you move westwards and inland, that decreases rapidly. So many parts of, for example, the west coast are quite arid. Uh, the per- precipitation is often uh, below 500 millimeters per um, of rain per year. Just to give you an idea, the worldwide average is about 860 millimeters uh, of rain per year. So you face a problem where if you t- look at the country overall, there are very different uh, geographical areas, very different biomes, very different uh, areas that are some are prone to flooding and some are, pro- for example, prone to malaria, like in the northeast corner. But on the other hand, you have the West Coast, which is often arid and desert-like. And in the center, it changes in between. So challenges from a disaster risk point of view is quite a variety of um, hazards that you deal with. Does that contribute like the, the, the literally extreme uh, of the uh, you know the setup of South Africa? Does that contribute to the the problems and the planning problems and the 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 uh, yes. the challenges yes, you have? Does. Yes, it does. Um, one of the major um, uh, news stories that made the headlines internationally was that Cape Town, which is on the south uh, western part of the country and has historically been called the mother city, and is one of the second largest city in uh, in the country, which and has about I could be wrong, but about five million people live there. Um, it was about to run out of water and reach the so-called day zero when there would be no more water to distribute through the piping infrastructure. So there were actually being plans put in place to distribute water and take into account things like, for example, potential social unrest and so on. And what has actually happened was that because there has been no rain and it became very difficult to predict when the precipitation would actually come, the city came up with very innovative ways uh, by restricting water supply and putting limits on how much water of the tap people could use, they managed to uh, decrease the consumption of water that is supplied by the city to the citizens by about sixfold, which then resulted in the day zero never arriving. And people also started using water smart solutions. So, but it put, a, it put the city in a very precarious situation because of development being uneven, some areas having better service delivery than others. And it also causes problems because uh, planning becomes very difficult because in the context of climate change and the historical development of challenges, planning is often a challenge and you cannot uh, predict all the uncertainty that you will encounter. Is Cape Town still going through that? Are are they still experiencing some of that? Because I actually do remember seeing that on the news here. Yeah. Cape Town got out of it, mainly because the the population was really, the attitude of the people was really good. They embraced a lot of water-saving solutions. For example, if you look at, in North America, you have a tap, you open a tap and water runs freely. They changed that from water running and gushing out to water giving you, the tap giving you something like a mist. So you still get enough water, for example, to wash your hands, but at the same time, you're using a fraction of what you would normally be to do everyday activities and it adds up so people then reuse gray water for example wastewater from your household which doesn't include any inputs from the toilet and it seems like these um, these solutions are being made permanent so a change in behavior has actually resulted in 
the government, uh, both the local, provincial and national level, getting a little bit more time to come up with more permanent water supply solution for the city. So those temporary measures now are becoming part of, I guess, government policy now, right? How how is that being taken yes. by people? Are are they accepting of that? Or, you know, because they don't want to. You know, I guess there had to have been a Large, lot of fear. No, no. Uh, yes, there, there was a lot of uncertainty. It wasn't an easy time to go with. And now, basically, where I am based, we are now currently in a similar situation. So we are just about to run out of water in the next maybe couple of weeks. So there is now a rush to put things in place. Um, what has happened was that a lot of the innovative solutions were actually people implementing it themselves and a call by government to have public awareness campaigns to adopt water-wise living. And that has actually made a large impact. On the other hand, there is now planning for additional water, construct, water project construction. For example, desalination of seawater is being looked at as a possible solution to supply water because aridity of the environment of Cape Town is unlikely to go away. And even though rains will arrive, and they have already arrived, but the situation long-term needs to be stabilized, which is why the government at the national level is actually looking at uh, reconstructing or redesigning water supply to major metropolitan and rural areas around South Africa to be able to cope with what was a warning of day zero potentially coming in Cape Town. So I'm, I'm curious, does that mean that you know, there are impacts to other services? You know, how, how does that impact fire? You know, if, do, do they, yes, will they yes. experience the same thing or it's like, you know, too bad, there's a fire, you're going to let it burn. Sorry to say that sounds terrible, um, but. No, no, uh, no, no. It actually, you, you, you hit the nail on the head because the other type of uh, disaster which we have faced as a result of the drought partially is that there have been quite a lot of fires in the last two years around um, the southern coast of South Africa, going from where I am located all the way to the area near Cape Town or just outside of Cape Town. So it is one of the major challenges and actually one of the major research topics that we are going to start to focus on is how do you manage fires under the constant uh, drought, which has, the drought has been with us since 2015 on and off. And we under, it started under the El Ni- influence of an El Nino phenomena. <clears throat> Sorry. And uh, it is still actually in place. So fire uh, management, fire disaster management will definitely have to be and has already started to be modified. That, that's got to be daunting because you you're doing that for the whole country, right? It's not just a couple of areas. Um, the the uh, the situation is different in various geologi- geographical re- uh, uh, areas of the country. Uh, there have been some fire hazard problems in Johannesburg and Pretoria, which are sort of north, and that's the economic hub of South Africa. But that was mainly because of um, potential issues with occupational health and safety. Down, the fires are mainly located um, along the southern coast. Those are caused by either the drought or human action. The, um, so that's, that's the kind of one um, uh, climate change related type uh, of a disaster. The other type is the um, usual, uh, not usual, that's a, that's a harsh word, but the unfortunate side effect of informal settlements like you often, for example, see in Brazil in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, where you have informal settlements without access to basic services or where the density of population is highest in disaster-prone areas, for example, steep slopes. And often what that leads to in South Africa uh, especially when a uh, informal settlement or a couple of shacks 
pops up near an economic hub is that they tend to uh, not have properly uh, installed electricity and so on, and that, that leads to large fires. So that is the other problem. But down here in the south, it is mainly related to the drought and to human action being the trigger that causes the disasters. Well, you mentioned some of these uh, communities, and uh, I, I think that's, uh, I, I want to touch that on uh, in the next segment, because that's going to lead us to the public health pieces, and I've got some questions about that one. So we're going to take our first okay. break now. Uh, we're talking with Roman Tandlich from South Africa today about disaster risk reduction and public health implications, um, and we will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected and welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Roman Tandlich from South Africa, and we're talking about disaster risk reduction and public health implications um, in South Africa. And Roman, just before we went away on in the first segment, you started to touch on some of these uh, large communities that um, uh, you know don't have electricity or or have it hooked up incorrectly or uh, don't have access to um, proper running water veins and things like that. So how is South Africa dealing with the public health implications because that's got to cause health and especially you know health problems especially since you mentioned that there is the water problem as well how's that being dealt with yes uh, 
Well, the the challenges in water and uh, water service delivery and sanitation have uh, are not new. They have been around for many decades. So after the dawn of democracy in 1994, the government started uh, prioritizing delivery of services to rural areas and previously underprivileged, what we call underprivileged areas where the majority black population uh, used to or still lives. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, solutions have been have been uh, put in place. For example, service delivery in water was often done in a way where you wouldn't deliver piped water into each house, but you would, for example, do a standpipe in the middle of a settlement. And the the I think the legislation still says that you need to have a tab within uh, 200 meters of your dwelling. Uh, however, the problem is that then um, the often the water points or the, the communal tabs, as they're called, become dysfunctional because they are vandalized and so on. And the other problem is that because the country is water scarce, sanitation, the waterborne sanitation, which is seen as the golden standard and every South African aspires to having it, it's not been delivered to all the areas and still isn't. Uh, you, for example, still have schools that only use spit latrines and those are becoming hazardous, both as a hygiene hazard, but also, uh, unfortunately, a few pupils falling in and basically drowning in the pits of the toilet. So um, the the government has, over the years, taken various approaches to it. Uh, they have adopted various programs, and they have shifted the responsibility for sanitation between various departments until about 2014, when the Department of Water and Sanitation was actually constituted at the national government level to prioritize um, the improvement in hygiene. And it has to be said that, um, and I said that at the conference in Manila, that a large portion of the South African population has uh, achieved access to improved drinking water and also to sanitation. However, there are still challenges that remain, like, for example, rural areas where uh, piped water is difficult to get to due to logistical and cost challenges. But at the same time, the problem that remains is that often at the local government level, funding still remains a problem. Uh, you could say that in part this is due to corruption that has happened, but also the other problem which is still a challenge to address is lack of technical skills so that even if you have a solution, for example, a technology that can provide treatment of water at your house, you will have very limited ability for someone to install it because there will be no engineers at the local government level. So that's what the government is currently trying to address through various drives, um, funding, uh, skills development, and so on. So we'll we'll take a couple of steps back with the the health. Uh, we'll look at the health problem. How is South Africa addressing that? Knowing that some of these areas, you know, are having some of these problems. You mentioned you know the communal taps that you know are being vandalized. Yeah, that's that's got to cause you know health issues in some of these communities. So that's got to yeah. put a stress on your health providers, does it not? The um, the government has been working for a long time now on rolling out uh, universal health coverage across uh, the entire South African population to make sure mm -hmm. that the public health service will be able to uh, deliver quality health care to everyone, uh, which has worked up to a point. So basically, basic health care is free. The local clinics where that are normally, I think, for the most part, staffed by nurses, where you can, where every South African can get access to uh, healthcare. The problem is that there are often challenges in supply of medication, such as um, antibiotics and uh, anti-HIV drugs. 
Um, often, sometimes stockouts happen, and then uh, the challenges in the pub, uh, public sector often uh, cause um, the, are often caused by the fact that there is misman- financial mismanagement. So the government is trying to introduce universal health care or health insurance, should we say? But the challenges are still there, um, and yeah, that's where I would leave it. I think. So, it, but it's a it's a slow process that is actually being addressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the, not like it's um, being ignored. The, no, no, it's not being ignored. Uh, far from it. It's just that um, so uh, the there has been dedicated um, funding put towards healthcare. There has been dedicated government funding put towards development of water and sanitation in communities that previously didn't have it or that they had suffered from certain challenges. Uh, but it's an ongoing issue because um, the uh, other problem that South Africa has is that there's often a very um, economic activity is often concentrated in certain parts of the of the country, mainly back black, sorry not not back uh, large metropolitan areas, and that often leads to uh, uncontrollable migratory patterns of people mm-hmm. from a rural area moving to the cities and then development becomes unpredictable. So even if the government has the finances and has the desire to help, which it does, uh, it is playing catch up and it is almost like a um, lost co- uh, lost uh, battle from the get go because no matter what you provide, there will always be more people that demand services. So it's a, it's a, it's a juggling act and um, it seems like progress is being made um, but there are still challenges that remain. Big challenges too, because I, I know uh, people leaving, uh, you know, rural areas to go to urban areas is it's happening all around the world. So with the the problem with the the health that we you just talked about, there's the added problem of the water uh, uh, the situation that you've also addressed. How how is it, uh, or actually not how? Let's just to see. Are there has there been any examples? where you know, that stress has reached a limit where you're in a situation where it's like we've, we've got illnesses, we've got shortage of water, we've got shortage yes. of, you yes. know, yeah. ha- have you reached that point in, in any spot where, you know, you're, you're almost at the yeah. limit of what you can possibly do in South Africa? Um, the, the, the thing is that often the, there are a, every now and then there's an outbreak of, of a diarrheal disease because the water is contaminated. Because what often also happens is that the sewage treatment doesn't work. So in other words, uh, the sewage treatment plants are often dysfunctional. So you have then sewage running into urban settlements and you have people mm-hmm. coming into contact with fecal matter and so on, which then breeds diarrheal diseases and so on. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, also resulting in fatalities. There has been a couple recent examples. One is in um, the northwest province, which is just south of, south of Johannesburg. So if you look at the map, it's just uh, the area just outside of uh, what is called Gauteng, which is the um, the economic hub of South Africa. So just south of it is Northwest Province, and uh, or just around it is Northwest Province. The other example from the Eastern Cape where I'm based is um, what used to be called Queenstown. Now it's called Kumani, where the municipal services have broken down to such an extent that you literally can see raw sewage in the streets, or at least that was the case a couple of months ago. So uh, the problem is that uh, uh, the the challenge, it's like a perfect storm of um, 
maybe man-made or what used to be called NATEC disasters. Now you call it complex, I think, complex disasters or complex hazards, where the, because the area is uh, arid and it has a shortage of water because of its uh, climate, uh, that already puts you at a hazard of uh, suffering from certain illnesses. But then service delivery and water breaking down, for example, water being fecally contaminated, which is often the case or has been the case in Grandstown, uh, where I'm based, then kind of creates the conditions where, depending on what your health status is, you are actually then prone to um, suffering from an outbreak of a disease. And that is then very difficult to manage because um, once you have cascading effects like that kicking in, uh, where do you start? You treat the symptoms first, you address the problem first, and that's where often sometimes the challenges become a little too much for local government and the national or the provincial government has to step in, which is currently going on in Grandstown when it comes to uh, response to the drought and the water supply situation being a problem. Well, it's interesting you just mentioned that because I was going to ask, you know, what's the priority? You know, is it the the health side? Is it putting the infrastructure in? Is it finding more water wells? You know, I'm just throwing that out there. Is it, you know, getting people into schools to get the skills to be able to build the infrastructure? You know, what's the priority? Because obviously you can't do everything at once. Is there a priority? Yes, I mean... Uh, I think I think uh, it is fair to say that the South African government has actually prioritized all of what you just mentioned. It has actually put programs and funding in place and other engagements with uh, the various tiers of government to try to address all the uh, items on your wish list, so, we, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The problem is that because um, we, there's another compounding factor from a disaster point of view, and that is that many many sections of the country where you have piped water and the water distribution infrastructure is often old. So it is also prone to um, pipe breaks. And um, so even if the water is there, the raw water is there and you treat it, distribution to the consumer or the the, uh, citizens of the country becomes a problem because the pipe breaks then result in water spilling out onto the streets instead of being in your house. And it's not everywhere. But because it is, uh, at least in in, in um, Grahamstown, where I'm based, uh, it has become a little bit of an unpredictable exercise at times. And that puts local government at the back foot. And then the authorities at each level of government trying to deal with everything at once kind of complicates the response. So... Um, it is very difficult and very difficult, very difficult to handle such an not unpredictable situation, but should we say maybe at one stage or another, you can't see two steps ahead. You can see where you want to go, but because you can't see the two immediate steps you need to take um, because of the unpredictability of the situation, that kind of complicates them. Um, so to summarize it, the government is trying hard and it is not just a government is also uh, the NGOs, um, one uh, which is in particular been involved in the water situation in South Africa, which is called Gift of the Givers. And then also local citizens are taking, uh, taking progressive steps um, in trying to address the situation. And gains are being made, but unfortunately it is, it is a very, very long road ahead. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like growing pains because you mentioned, you know, democracy really coming in 1994. You're still, you know, even though South Africa has been around, but in your current form, South Africa is 
a new country. So you've got a lot of growing pains to go through, but you're on the right road. You've got, it sounds like you, all the right plans are in place. It's just, you know, the challenge is trying to get there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I mean, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll ask, I'll ask my question. No, no, after. Just, um, <laughs> what, what is, what is impressive about, about the, I shouldn't say it's going to sound wrong, but it is actually what I mean to say. What is impressive about the the disasters and uh, and South Africa is that it never never seems to break the people down. They are always ingenious enough, or dedicated enough, or and uh, passionate enough to do something about it. And I think in the end, that often makes the difference. The problem mm-hmm. becomes that um, the the uh, the vulnerability often takes. Um, takes toll on people and often what happens is that because nationally unemployment is about 28 percent and often what actually happens is that um, you suffer from the fact that one household is held by one income so one person is employed and then you have nine ten maybe 15 people in an extended family that depend on that one income and if that income goes away vulnerability shoots up so in other words the other challenge that people face is that uh, vulnerability is very difficult to manage. And that often, for example, if you have uh, the urban settlements that I have talked about, the the townships or the shanty towns around big cities like Johannesburg, people often live in hazardous prone areas and they return there even after, for example, flood happens because they have simply no other choice. So um, the, it is, it is, it is impressive to see what South Africa has achieved and what it ha- what is achieving on a daily basis because people refuse to give up. It's just that sometimes the vulnerability is too high to um, to make a difference immediately. But people keep trying, and ultimately things are the growing pains. I think are going to be overcome. Well, I guess that that says something to you know the South African people. You know, lots of resiliency. You know, they all the ad, ad, yeah. ad, you know the uh, negative things that have happened in the past, you know, and continue to happen with you know fires and floods and all different kinds of other things. Yeah. But still, yeah. regroup to move forward, and that's what South Africa is yes. doing right now. Yes. That's where you are. Yes. Uh, yes. I think I think the the one thing which we talked about at the conference in in Manila was resilience being a buzzword that at the moment is making rounds in the disaster management fraternity. And actually, you make a valid point because um, resilience is something that is almost uh, a combination of, it's not just science that you can quantify, it actually needs to be inside the people. And when you look at what South Africa has achieved on a day-to-day basis, in spite of many challenges that they face, I agree with you, the, the resilience is very high among the population. Well, and it takes time too, you know, because you, you said buzzword, and a lot of people still think that, you know, they they have a couple of awareness sessions, and all of a sudden everybody's resilient, or they buy a couple of technological yeah. components, and their company's resilient, yeah. and that's yeah. not really the case, yeah. is it? Yeah, yeah, that's not, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, so yeah, so actually, what what has been what I've seen as a personal transformation over the last. 13 years or so was that I started as a very much as a natural scientist and I'm like, okay, so what does social science have to do with anything? But the more you do this kind of research, when you kind of maybe say stumble into, let's say business continuity or disaster management or whatever you want to call the name on the door, you actually become something transdisciplinary when it comes to your approach to thinking. And you actually realize that you need to learn on a continuous basis. And I think that's, 
that's the nature of um, disaster management in general, but specifically in South Africa, is that the transdisciplinarity and you you kind of create your new field of endeavor, of academic or scientific or whatever uh, endeavor, and you combine methods from both sides of the aisle, which would historically not talk to each other. And that mm-hmm. is ultimately what I think is going to come uh, lead to solutions being done that are local, that apply to South Africa specifically, but that are also going to be long-sustaining because they will be founded not just in natural or social sciences, but in everything that actually all the aspects of the disaster risk will be addressed. And on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Roman Tandlich from South Africa about <clears throat> excuse me, disaster risk reduction and public health implications. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking with Roman Tanlich. Uh, from South Africa about disaster risk reduction and public health implications in South Africa, a paper he presented at the emergency, uh, interna- the International Emergency Management Society conference in Manila, uh, Philippines, back in November 2018. Roman, in our last segment, uh, you gave us uh, a lot of talk about some of the things that are happening, and I wonder if we could expand that a little bit more. What does the future hold for you know, uh, city planners and, you know, emergency planners, you know, with regards to some of the uh, health uh, crises and some of the uh, water uh, 
issues and challenges that are, are being experienced, what do they need to take into account now? What do they need to do to go forward to make, hopefully, fingers crossed, mm-hmm. these problems go away? Yes, yes, that, that's a very good question. Um, the um, uh, the overriding, one of the overriding themes is that um, everything is supposed to become self-sufficient or resilient against perturbations from disasters. So that means, for example, all new government and also private houses and public buildings that are going up in parts of the country where you have above average rainfall for South Africa, uh, people are installing rainwater tanks. So in other words, you harvest the rainwater and if your water supply is cut off from the municipal supplier, you can switch to the rain tank and um, you should be able to maintain levels of water supply, hygiene and sanitation at the required levels. At the same time, what the um, what has been happening quite a lot in the area I'm in is that people are trying to go, so to say, self-service delivery route. So that means many people are installing boreholes um, and wells to draw groundwater from because we, we specifically sit on a huge aquifer and there are other places in, the, in South Africa where groundwater is an underutilized resource. Um, and you then, you then basically pull the water out of the ground, you treat it on site and you make it potable and then use it in your house or in any buildings, like for example, Rhodes University is doing at the moment in the residences and also will be, sorry, will be doing in the residences. People are looking at reusing as much of the resources that they are provided with. So many places like gray water reuse is quite strong. That means whatever water you use from the kit, from the showers and the bathrooms, you recycle it either for irrigation or you recycle it for things like toilets, flushing to make sure that um, levels of hygiene are maintained, but at the same time your water footprint goes down and you make the resources that are limited last longer. In addition to that, uh, what is often going on is that um, Beside another compounding factor, which is potentially quite one of the biggest risks to South Africa at the moment, and it's man-made, is the uh, we are kind of living on and off with the possibility of a countrywide blackout, uh, where the power grid has become in recent years, has been for a decade, but is recently it has come back, has become very unstable. So the uh, the countrywide blackout has been on the cards three or four years ago. Now it's been kind of averted, but it's still more or less there. And because of the high crime and everything else, uh, people are trying to go off the grid. So installing solutions like uh, solar panels, uh, wind turbines on top of your roof, and maybe or generators where you can generate electricity in your house. And that allows you then to maintain normal standard of living, but also maintaining things like um, security systems and so on. So that is the kind of... uh, considerations that uh, regular citizens but also city planners and also government officials need to have in mind when they plan for uh, business continuity should we say uh, in South Africa. So there's really a, a movement to uh, change the way people do things because you mentioned a lot of interesting examples you know you're not wasting water you've got your solar panels being used wind generators uh, you know, that, that's really changing the way people think and behave. It's not, you know, they're not wasting anymore. Yes. Uh, the only issue is that um, it depends. Uh, okay, let me put it this way. Uh, people are changing their ways and they're adapting. So the adaptive capacity of the South African population and the, um, or if you even want to say the business ecosystem is quite, quite good. 
The problem is that uh, you at the same time face challenges where there is a high in income inequality. So, sorry, um, decentralizing your power grid um, is unfortunately not within the reach of every citizen. So that means mm -hmm. that um, depending on your income or depending on, on, your, on your purchasing power, should we say, and I could be wrong in the terminology, but the, the idea is uh, that long-term solutions like self-sufficiency in uh, power generation and so on costs money and not everyone can afford it. So in other words, uh, the resilience in parts of the population increases, but at the same time, the vulnerability of the lower income brackets of the society uh, is not improving, but in some cases actually going up. So in other words, one of the main challenges that the government will have to grapple with, and actually it is already trying to address it, is how do you strengthen the middle class? How do you uh, basically um, undo, so to say, injustices of the past, but mainly how do you increase the income equality among the population? So in other words, how do you manage one of the main vulnerabilities, which is uh, lack of resources in many cases? Well, lack of resources. You mentioned uh, something that was being underutilized, wells. Is that be happening more and more, not you know, in the cities and in rural areas? Because you said you were sitting on a large um, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, body of water, so to speak. Yes, it does. In Grahamstown in, or in Mahanda, where Rhodes University is located, we're sitting on an aquifer which has recently started to be exploited. But during the drought that Cape Town experienced, uh, uh, and they were as they were approaching day zero, boreholes started going, the number of privately owned boreholes started going up. Uh, but again, this is a groundwater is a limited resource and it depends where you are. So what is the size of the aquifer that you're actually tapping into and what is the relationship between that aquifer and your other water resources? So for example, if you in Cape Town, the point was that there were a few aquifers that were tapped for additional water, but at the same time, you need to make sure that you don't over extract the amount of water from those aquifers because otherwise the sea, which is just around the corner, is going to start protruding in and then the salinity goes up and the water mm -hmm. becomes non-potable or undrinkable. So that kind of striking that kind of balance is not always easy. But I think uh, one of the main research areas in hydrology, I think, in South Africa is the interaction between surface water and groundwater and getting the right balance. What is the relationship between the volumes of water in both pools? And then how can you use one without over extracting too much and influencing the other? So that is, that is also something that is being looked into both in the, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, there's, I wanted to touch on your paper, um, you know, in our last uh, little bit here. You have you had a lot of statistics here about some successes uh, with regards to you know some of the things uh, that have been done with regards to the water um, problem. And I would just yeah. like, could you could you touch on that? Because you had a lot of great statistics and findings um, from uh, all the work that you did. And I was wondering if you could touch uh, on that for a little while. Okay. Well. Uh uh, the, the, there, were, there were two papers that I presented. The first one was looking at access to water and sanitation, improved water and sanitation throughout four Southern African countries. And there you can see that the, uh, the, uh, there were two trends. The first one was that increased access to water was generally not a problem. So 
Uh, we looked at four countries, mainly Angola, Namibia, Botswana, and South Africa, and we compared them. And as you can see, over the between 1990 and 2015, the statistics from uh, uh, international bodies such as the World Bank indicate that uh, almost uh, that in Botswana and South Africa almost 95% of people reached access to improved water. So that means access to water wasn't a problem, yet sanitation is lagging behind. On the other hand, when you look at uh, countries like Angola and Namibia, the uh, access to uh, sanitation water is still lagging behind. Also. And that indicates that differences in policies can give you a better example of what works, what doesn't. So what we're hoping to do is use this data to derive conclusions about policies and technical solutions that were used across the Southern African subcontinent and maybe identify best practices in trying to uh, popularize them a little bit and maybe see if the successes from one country can be shared by another and vice versa. Well, I, I guess you kind of said it, water and sanitation, they kind of go hand in hand, right? If you improve the, the access to they water, sh- then sanitation hopefully will follow. It should. It's not always the case, though. The, the, the data, for example, if you look at when you looked at Angola, uh, in 1990, 45.7% of the population had access to improved water in one form or another, whether a communal tap inside the tap inside the house or anything like that. But only 22% had access to improved sanitation. Fast forward to 2015, and the water access has pretty much remained steady uh, and only increased marginally to 49%, yet the access to improved sanitation rose to, from 22 to 51.6% of the population. Now, that means that even though access to water hasn't improved, access to sanitation has. Now, why is that? Now, mm. that's the, that's the million-dollar question. And the other problem is, even if you look at the statistics, the improvement in sanitation is a remarkable, uh, almost 300%. But the problem is that only one in two people in Angola still had access to improved sanitation facilities. So that means you will still have a major hygiene problem and you will still have the potential for the disaster risk from waterborne diseases and infectious diseases related to sanitation and water access are still pretty much through the roof. So, yeah, that is the kind of research that we're trying to do. And on top of that, we're also trying to look at uh, development of technologies where you can, under any circumstance, do something. So in other words, for example, grey water, the the household wastewater without any inputs from the toilets. Many times, the way that you treat it, it goes down the sewer and then goes into a treatment plant, gets treated and discharges clean water in an ideal scenario. But if you have an informal settlement where there are no pipes, no grey water collection, no sewage collection, what do you do? So one of the things that we have done for the past decade or so is try to develop a system where you use scrap materials to treat the water regardless of whether it's the back of a shack or the back of a four-story house. And among other things, we have now developed a prototype that we're hoping to roll out into the um, public domain for use. Well, I guess that comes down to like some of the areas that don't have the improved sanity, uh, sanitation. Sorry is taking some of those lessons learned that worked in South Africa or Botswana and applying those to what can be done in Angola, right? Like taking what you can and learning from each other to improve so everybody's sanitation goes up. Correct, correct.
Well, we've only got two minutes left. Um, I'll give you one more minute. You know, is there any closing comment you'd like to say about your research and some of the things that you're you're working on? Well, um, um, the the idea is that I came into South Africa being uh, from the developed world, so I was used to things working. But when you actually realize that many times challenges in the developing world are insurmountable, and even in areas where on average things look uh, like they should work, they often don't. So you have to, it was a, there was a huge mindset change on my part, which then resulted in me trying to do science in a way that would be acceptable to the masses. So that whatever solution I come up with is so robust that it can actually survive just about any disaster that you throw at it. And that's been pretty much the motto ever since. Well, I'd like to thank you for your time, Roman. Uh, it's been uh, enlightening finding out uh, the challenges uh, that you have and the work you're doing in South Africa and neighboring countries with your research. So I wish you all the best on that. I hope you continue with it. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. Thank you very much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And my pleasure, too, to have you here. And I hope to see you, uh, fingers crossed, in Seoul, Korea for the Teams uh, conference. Uh, I forget. It's in November, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's in November. Yes. Yes, I think <laughs> so, so. Hopefully we see each other there. Um, to everyone listening, again, if there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, please feel free. Send me an email and uh, we'll touch base. We'll see what we can do. And I will be in Phoenix for the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September, uh, late September, early October this year, uh, hopefully doing a live broadcast. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.